Welcome to the Power of podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. In this episode, we continue with the theme of the power of feminist civil society. In the previous episode, we heard from Karla Berdichevsky feldman and Rafaela Skiavon about a very concrete example of feminist civil society effectively working with the Ministry of Health in Mexico to develop a national strategy which ensured more gender equitable access to COVID-19 vaccinations through the inclusion of pregnant women. In this episode, we turn back to the field of violence against women and hear from two long-standing experts and advocates on the need to rebuild connections between feminist civil society actors and those in the health space as the field of violence against women has progressed. We also explore the transferable insights for those working in other health areas. The two guests joining us today are Tina Musuya, a feminist and the executive director of Center for Domestic Violence Prevention in Uganda. Tina has 16 years of experience working with communities, police, civil society, local government, and policymakers to prevent violence against women in Uganda. Our second guest, Lori Heisey, has over 30 years of experience working in areas of gender equality, social change, and women's health, first as an activist practitioner and later as a researcher. She's currently a professor of gender violence and health at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and also serves as the co-founder and the technical director of the Prevention Collaborative. Tina and Lori, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited about this conversation. I wanted to start off by asking you, in the field of uh, prevention of violence against women, you know, feminist civil society actors have played a very long-standing and quite a critical role in designing breakthrough innovations in programming, but also very much shaping the terms of ethical research, policy, and funding. And increasingly, we're hearing of tensions between different actors in the health space, sidelining perhaps the, the feminist civil society actors. And I wondered if you could tell us, you know, A, do you think this this tension is building up? Is it actually building up? Um, if so, why now and some of the reasons behind it? So I think I'm really liking this conversation over the years. I think feminists and, and women rights organizations have been doing this work, coming from their deep convictions that things must change. And they've done this work with and without resources. And, and, and now when a lot seems clear in terms of what is the problem, how can we work around it, uh, around it? Because the feminists have figured out the how and, and how to do it well. So, so many actors have come on board, which is a good thing to happen. And now when they came in, uh, there's a good side to it and then the, the difficult side to it. And that's, those are the tensions that we are talking about. And the ten tensions um, manifest in the following ways. One, as much as the women, the feminists, 
have been innovative and have been doing this work for a very long time, a lot of their work has been in many ways hijacked for lack of a good word and hijacked in the following ways. One, after they've figured out the, how, the what and how, so many actors have taken over the space in terms of, you know, sidelining the efforts of the, of the feminist work. And, you know, like for example, when research comes and the funding comes, the women rights organizations who have been doing this work for a very long time, their voices are sidelined. They are not listened to, they are, they've not always been part of the agenda setting. Other folks are claiming a lot of knowledge and ownership, you know, of the efforts of feminists. So they are coming to make the major decisions about who, what should the research look like? Who is owning that research? And then secondly, so the whole bit of research, who is setting the agenda and what are we taking as evidence? I think that is a, a point of contest. And then again, when other actors come in and then they are taking leadership as the champions, you know, champions, <gasps> I freak out. <laughs> champions, how can you be champions when you've just come in? And is, are you being champions because you're only saying right words? Why are we not giving the titles of champions to the ones who have actually led this work. So all those, because then now when we call certain groups champions, again, we are reinforcing the inequality between the women rights organizations. We are, you know, we are taking their work for granted. That's also another point of contention. Then again, when it comes to resourcing the work, when we say resourcing the work is how much investment are we putting in these women, uh, these feminists organizing? You'll be shocked to see that the same stereotype that thinks that women must be volunteers is informing the investment. Because then they will say, oh, grassroots. They, they are saying grassroots because they are not valuing your work. They are thinking that the grassroots Organizing will take only $10,000, that's enough for you. And they'll expect that the women and the ones that they are working with are going to volunteer their time free of charge. That is also another point of contention. Yet these other actors who are coming in are going away with huge funds. And when um, some donors come to this space, they expect that they will fund maybe only one program staff, 100%, then the others will be given a small amount of, a small amount of, 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 of remuneration. How do you expect transformation to happen with just peanuts and not valuing the work that these feminists are doing and not even remembering that the work that they are doing is so heavy, it takes an emotional toll on their well-being but such components are not funded because they're like, oh, this is not important. We we'll only have to do this. And then there's peanut funding. And then who is caring about the wellness of these women? So all these are things that we need to be um, looking at as, as, as tensions. And then again, who is taking leadership 
in all this work, the feminists have innovated, they've, they've taken the burden of creating all this transformative change. But then when it comes to leadership, the leadership is being taken away from them. There's, uh, we need to, I don't know how to say this, to create the space and allow to be led by these feminists in terms of agenda setting, guidance of how programming needs to happen, as opposed to someone saying, look, there's money here, start now, end now. Transformation doesn't work like that. We need to be listening <laughs> to these feminists to really lead and say, look, we are going to work on this issue for the next maybe five or 10 years, and the starting point will be transforming ourselves, figuring out and piloting, because <clears throat> transformation is also about piloting what may or and finding out what may not work. Not just saying one, two, three things must be done and that's it. Because we as feminists have figured out, tried out, burnt our fingers, certain things haven't worked, and then we come back and refine, because then we are engaging people and they are interacting with this new way of thinking or life, and they are trying that out. Sometimes the things happen well, while sometimes things are messy. And then, of course, what I was forgetting, the backlash. Backlash is real, for real. We've seen so many actors come in and veer off the gender equality role, because if you're doing this work and you miss the component, of analyzing this problem from a gender power analysis angle, you've gotten it wrong because then you end up, you know, um, getting more gender neutral kind of analysis, which is diluting issues. And then what may be proposed as way forward or work around that may be reinforcing the very hierarchies, oppressive hierarchies that we've been working so hard to undo. Or we may end up excluding others because when other actors just jump in without understanding what are the core um, injustices that we must transform. If they just come on board, then they will choose and pick. Oh, it's about maybe GBV, yes. Then GBV, we are going to define it in this way and then exclude other people. They do not understand the intersectionality of, of, of injustice. And therefore, they will not understand the complex, um, inclusive gender programming. So I think that those are things that <laughs> I really wanted to throw to this space. I think it's interesting because I, I think everyone would agree that feminist of all stripes, whether it be movement feminist or feminist uh, working in implementation or advocacy have really been absolutely instrumental in putting violence on the agenda and and on multiple agendas. So on the health agenda, on the development agenda, on the human rights agenda. And I think what's interesting now is that I think we've won the rhetorical battle where people agree that, yes, this is an issue of global dimensions and concern and it deserves you know um intervention and and it deserves sort of uh uh it deserves to be a global 
issue, you know, that people take seriously, governments and, and otherwise. And and I think what's interesting is that for the last 10 years, I think feminists, and I would put myself in this category, have struggled with, okay, so now people say, yes, 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 but what do we do? And I think that we've spent a decade now sort of catching up to being able to say, okay, not so much like you should pay attention, but how do we actually respond? And, and what do we do beyond services, which are, abs- again, absolutely essential, but what do we do beyond services to try to actually bring down levels of violence? And I think what's happened is as the needs of the field have shifted, the people who have the power in the field have shifted. So in the beginning, you know, it was activist and, and feminist movements. Um, as we have had to take on board trying to figure out really sort of what works and and how to evaluate what we've been doing and how to improve upon what we've been doing, I think there's been a rise of research to answer some of these questions. And I think that in the beginning, what's interesting is that the research was not going on. And so a lot of us who, and I put myself again in this category, we were activists, we were advocates, and we and we suddenly realized, okay, we've been doing the same thing for years and years and years, and we don't feel like we're making progress. And we need to go back to kind of first principles and think about, okay, how do we actually evaluate with whether what we're doing is working? And so many of us had to enter the research field. That's not where we started, but mid-career or late career, as feminist activists, we said, we need to learn the language and the skills of research to be able to do this work. And so the first generation, I think, of feminist research on violence against women was really very much informed by people who retooled, you know, who came from the movement and went back to school. I mean, I got a PhD at 50, you know, went back to school to to have that skill set to be able to engage. But as we've succeeded in expanding research, I think it's recruited new people and it's recruited a broader range of people. And it's recruited both young feminists, which is great, and more kind of mainstream researchers or researchers from economics and some of these other fields, which don't necessarily start from the same sort of feminist analysis. And so you're seeing what I think is more of a tension between people who come at the issue from a feminist-informed analysis and people who are less familiar or are not familiar with that. And so it's less that the tension is between researchers and activists or between whatever. It's more first generation of people who really share a sort of political philosophy and a political analysis and a wider set of people who've been attracted by our success in some respects, right? Of being able to 
to kind of have this discourse in spaces that feminists have, like uh, in my space, you know, in terms of public health, where feminists have not had such a presence until the last, you know, decade. And so I think I would say the tension I think it's a I think it's not correct to say the tension is between groups of feminists as much as the tension is between the rise of of the issue and the attraction of new actors which I think holds a lot of potential you know but also creates some sort of like, well, wait a second, why are they getting money? Why are they getting support? You know, and, and I think some of that is a function of operating in an environment of scarcity, right? So it's very easy to be generous. And it's very easy to embrace new perspectives when a field is well funded and well supported. And I think that some of the tensions comes from the overall lack of support that the issue of violence against women and, and prevention and all of that has gotten, whether it be from a public health perspective or a human rights perspective or research or activism. So, you know, I, I think there are some tensions, but I don't think they're always necessarily correctly framed is what I would say. It's really um, interesting to hear you talk about it in terms of how uh, sort of the status of the field changed. And as you said, actors were drawn in who who didn't come from sort of the same starting point in terms of those feminist principles, even though it, it, it might be actors in different spaces. So I really appreciate that clarification and, and sort of analysis. I think it sounds like there's also um, sort of historical memory loss in a way, right? In terms of the role of, of many of these feminist actors, recognizing the important role they have played. So thank you very much for reminding me about that historical memory loss, especially here in our region. A lot of referencing or what we've looked at as, as credible documentation is what is written and written in a certain way um, by certain standards that are not uh, defined here. So the question is, who is setting the historical documentation and whose standards are we looking at as acceptable? So that kind of the standard that is around now, in fact, contributes to that memory loss. And, and historical um, contribution of women, that's one. So how are we profiling and also making sure that we do not lose that out? How are we making, um, again, it's because of the burden that we place on the feminists. You know, they are busy working themselves tired to poor health, and then they get lost from the space. Do we even have like, like events to acknowledge their contribution? And are we looking out for them to really see where is this activist? I've seen so many feminists retire to poverty. It pains me so much because they've been doing voluntary work all their prime age 
And for me, that tantamounts to exploitation because then, you know, they don't even have time to, to take care of their own health. And what is, um, there's nothing, there's very little that is being done to really profile and celebrate the achievements. So all that goes to waste. And again, we are not having like the, the, a whole accountability mechanism whereby we need to uphold what was done before and then build on that because it's like, there's this craze of, oh, there's this new thing that is working. Then it's like whatever was done before kind of gets lost. And then it's just about the new thing, the in thing, which is again being set mainly by the call for funding. It's about the prioritizing by the groups that have money and they're not amplifying the voices of what was already existent. I do think it's really important that we don't allow history to be rewritten and that we claim that history, right? And so I've seen that happen in, in multiple fields where the innovators and the, and the people who sort of put things on the agenda get all, almost overtaken by their own success. And it attracts a bunch of people who are actually better positioned in some ways to attract the funding and to do a lot of the work. And so, and you know, I, I have a mixed minds because I actually think attracting some of attracting people and disciplines that are sort of outside of the kind of inner circle of folks that have always worked together and talked together is actually creative and it creates sort of a creative tension. I think you, but you don't want the history to be lost and you want to have that acknowledgement. We're entering a phase, I think, where some division of labor or comparative advantage probably makes sense. So in the early days, everyone had to do everything. <laughs> um, and there just weren't enough people. There wasn't enough analysis. It was too, you know, it was not recognized as a human rights issue. It wasn't recognized as a health issue. It, it didn't have uh, a place for discussion and sexual and reproductive health and rights. Once you win that battle, which I think we have, then you, you start to have a bigger agenda, right? Because it's not just the advocacy agenda, it's the how-to agenda, and it's the why, and it's the political mobilization for funding for programs as well as advocacy. And, and so I think right now, I see the challenge as being one where how do we keep the different strands of feminist work uh, in conversation with each other. So I do think, you know, there's, there's feminist work going on in research. There's feminist work going on in, at the community level in terms of practice-based uh, implementation and knowledge generation. There's the advocacy and the changing the discourse you know, changing the frame, the critique, of, it, it, feminist critique and analysis of all of the issues, whether that be COVID or violence or how COVID affects violence. 
All of those things are important. And groups and individuals are, are differently placed in terms of the way that they can contribute to the larger political project. If I can ask, what are some concrete steps that you think um, can be taken by different partners in the prevention space? You know, given, given these tensions, given how things are moving, um, you know, how can these partnerships with feminist civil society organizations be more meaningfully rebuilt and in a more sustainable way? I think one of the things that I see happening now, which I would like to figure out ways to rectify, is that we are no longer as in conversation. So the people who are the movement people are not in conversation with the people generating some of the evidence. Let's say you're, you are an organization that works on law reform. If you work on law reform, there's a range of things that you can be doing. And traditionally in the violence field, those folks have tended to work on domestic violence laws and criminalizing domestic violence. I think there's evidence emerging that that may not be the best use of our movement energy um, because there's downsides of criminalization. There's not a lot of evidence that criminalizing domestic violence as our sole strategy actually reduces levels of violence. Whereas things like changing inheritance laws or changing maintenance and, and some of the laws, family law that allow women more possibility to leave and maintain custody of their children actually has a much bigger impact. So these kinds of discussions I think, are what we really need to foment. And, and, and there's debate there, too. I mean, not everyone's going to agree with me. But the idea that what we need to do is the people who are doing research need to be in discussion with the people who are positioned to take these things up as political issues. And, you know, one of the things I don't want to see happen is that some groups, you know, people say, well, we want all women's rights organizations and social movements to do prevention programming. And I'm like, well, I don't because the, the, what it takes to do kind of day to day, big programs in a community takes off the, the energy and the everything to do political activism. And we need both. And, and so it's, it's what we need is to better coordinated strategy together towards a mutual end rather than everyone trying to do everything. Um, and, I, and I think we're right at that moment now where more money is now finally flowing to women's rights organization and feminist movements. There's money going to figuring out sort of the prevention piece, but we're not as in conversation about how to maximize our collective impact, um, as I think would be healthy and, and useful for, for our, what I'm sure is the same goal, right? Um, and it's partly a style thing. It's partly how the funding flows and what gets funded and, um, 
And it's partly, you know, time and all of those things. So I really think one of the things we need to do is create some intentional spaces for those conversations. Um, And, you know, I came of age during the whole kind of UN decade on women, right? And so it was like the 90s. I was in my 20s and 30s, or my 30s probably. And there was funding that donors gave to organize around these whole set of kind of milestone political agenda conferences. So from the population conference in Cairo to the Vienna conference on human rights to the Beijing conference. And what that funding did more importantly than the conferences was create spaces for dialogue at from local level to state level to national level to regional level to global level around some of these strategic questions like, you know, what is the best way to deal with violence? Do we want to take a more health approach? Do we want to take a criminal justice approach? Do we want to take a human rights approach? So all of those things, there were spaces then and they were funded and that has disappeared. And I think that is one of the reasons that we don't have as articulated a strategy across our different competencies as a as feminists and and we need to make the case that in addition to funding research or funding uh, feminist movements that we need this glue this we need the space and the funding for these critical conversations these critical strategic conversations across feminist movements across, you know, different intersectional movements. I think it calls for humility. Let all the actors come back and have an honest conversation and see what was it that went wrong and how did it hurt and deeply hurt um, or harm the feminist cause. I think that's extremely important so that there's like a shared understanding of what the backlash and the tensions are and have honest conversations. They'll be hard and in many ways painful, but let us listen to them. Because if we don't, then there won't be taking of responsibility to make the necessary changes. So the first point is the deep conversations with the women rights organizations for them to really see how this has created harm for them and how their voices have been gagged. And then let's hear from them to know how we can amplify their voices. That's one. Then again, how do we get um, these feminists into the spaces of agenda setting and prioritization so that we hear from them all categories of feminists because all women across the clusters, we need to know how are they coming to the table? How are their issues being listened to? How can we be led by them in terms of, yes, there's a bunch of donors here, researchers here, and practitioners here. How do we get together to really hear from them and learn from them? Because there's like this whole kind of annoying practice of thinking that the women's rights, the 
grassroots organizations do not have competencies. But are we being honest about that? Or we who are looking from this side are the ones who don't have the competencies of what they have. Because when you don't know something, it doesn't mean that that person doesn't have competencies. You need to go with an open mind to learn from them. Because learning is not one side traffic, it's a two way traffic. So opening up that space is very, very important. Let's listen to them and let us be led by them. If there is, let's say $10,000 that we are putting to a certain cause, let us hear from them to really know how can they use this $10,000 best? Instead of saying $5,000 will be for programming work, $3,000 will be for admin, then $2,000 will be for research. I mean, it shouldn't be like that. They can budget. They can really budget and they know what is most important. So let us work with them to create the priorities and let us also work with them to see how we can effectively budget and use the available resources. So for me, I think that's um, one area. And then the other issue is we need to flush out what we are calling how to be accountable to, to each other. What does accountability look like to the women and what uh, um, the feminists? What does accountability look like? to other actors and then what is allyship i think we need to define if we are partners what sort of partners are we are we are we coming in as equal partners and what does that mean and how do we define that partnership and then allyship how do we work together as allies so that every actor's contribution is valued and we are making decisions together and we are complementing each other and we are growing together because it shouldn't be about fracturing us, but it's about solidarity and allyship, which in my view needs to be defined, not just in rhetoric, but in action. Following from that point, it feels like the health system has really found it difficult to digest and accept in a way its role in terms of um, whether we're talking about reinforcing inequalities or power structures, right? Affecting the agency of women and girls, the health system. If the health sector had deeper recognition about the social being of, of the health practitioners and then the, the health service, seekers of the health services, and, you know, got a deep understanding of how all this works out and how... Um, it can support their own outcomes and then how to be more um, deliberate at making sure that their own interventions are not, you know, messing up that, you know, are also transformational. I think that would be, uh, we would be in a much better place because if I'm to give a quick example to that, in Uganda, the health sector with all good intentions decided to require men to come with their wives for antenatal services. And then here is what happened. So if a man showed up with a woman at the health center, a pregnant woman, they would be served first as a couple, and then they will give them, them certain extra free services, including 
mosquito nets. Uh, there's something called mama kit. And then for a woman who showed up alone, would be stigmatized and would be served last. Now, they miss out the social component, and I'm going to tell you how. Many men are adulterous. They are married, but they have mistresses who they've made pregnant, but they wouldn't want to show with them in public. So if you discriminate against her by not showing up with her partner, I think that's, again, another challenging component of conditioning women's access to health services to a man. I think it shouldn't be like that. It should be about who comes first. A woman has a right to health care services, no matter what the conditions are. Then secondly, men of those men, because they will not show up like that, but maybe they rape the women. Now these women would be forced. Do you know Boda Bodas? Yes, uh, Boda Boda are motorbike taxis. Uh-huh. So these women would be forced to hire Boda Boda men to come with them to pretend as if it's a couple so that they are served quickly. Now, that woman would be in problems because this border man will, at a certain point, start to ask for sexual favors because he stood in for her. Then secondly, the one who is responsible for the pregnancy will be told by the other neighbors and friends that, oh, you know what? That pregnancy is not yours. She actually goes to the health center with the actual husband. And then that's gonna result into lots of violence, beatings and you know, uh, refusal uh, to provide and denying of the, 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 the pregnancy. And a lot of other related issues. I mean, the border man will be exposed to see the medical details of this woman who is not the partner. So where is the whole issue of confidentiality? And that's where we say if um, the interventions of the health could combine with you know, all these gender hidden issues, which is mainly the social aspect of the human being that feminists are very well in the know of, a lot of interventions would be done better. Because in this way, rather than require the men to come first, we would first engage them and transform them and let them know the importance of coming so that women are not punished for being, you know, the vulnerable ones here. That's, that's a very powerful example, Tina. Thank you. Um, I'm conscious of time, and I wanted to ask you one final question, if I can. You know, with our broader audience in mind, and I think a lot of the things you've touched on actually are transferable, but I wondered... If we're looking to make links, you know, with different health areas and thinking about, like I mentioned, the health system more broadly, um, what do you think are some key takeaway or transferable lessons uh, or even warnings, you know, you'd like to give others in other spaces in terms of really establishing and maintaining uh, meaning meaningful engagement with feminist civil society actors? I think one of the challenges that we face right now as a feminist movement on a variety of issues is the what it takes to actually take something from t putting something on the agenda to figuring out the details of how something can be achieved and evaluated and implemented requires a different set of skills. And 
often it requires engaging with folks who don't necessarily agree with you and who may have a lot more power than you. And, and I think that we have, I think one of the things that we did well in the violence movement is people recognized that they needed to retool. That the same skill set that we brought to putting things on an agenda was not going to take us to the next step. And that we needed to create, you know, and, and even if it wasn't just us, that, that, you know, now, you know, I'm 60 years old and I think that, I think there's a whole generation of young women who are coming of age where the kind of research on violence that we pioneered is just second nature to them. And the kind of, you know, th there's now courses and you can get degrees in it and all that kind of stuff. That's success, you know, and, and we should own that and we should turn over that power. Um, but I think we can't just assume that you can always stand on the outside that the same strategies that serve you when an issue is not being recognized and you're trying to create space are not the ones that will take you the next phase. Um, and I think there's a, some discomfort with that at times because it suddenly means that you're sort of playing with the people. You're, it's more of an insider strategy than an outsider strategy. And, and you know, some people are better more comfortable with that and some people shouldn't and they should stay outside because you need those people too. I think the whole component of listening and being inclusive, especially listening to women and girls and also being inclusive to have all um, women represented because women are not homogeneous. They're different groups of women, whether they are identify or whatever identities that they, they are all, um, in terms of religion, race, ethnicity, their sexual orientation, whether they come from the, the disability group, they all need to be listened to because they come with their life experiences and they experience vulnerabilities from different angles. So we cannot assume that if we have a certain group of women, it's representative. I think we shall be excluding. We need to be inclusive and we have to be deliberate at, at that. And we must listen to them because they know their experiences better. So uh, inclusive and listening is something that must be repeatedly done, not once. And we mustn't tire about that if we really want to transform. Then let us be led, but let us be led by these women and girls. Because again, if we do not um, allow to be, create the space to be led by these women, we shall be falling back into the trap of, you know, creating the very hierarchies of oppression that we are trying to deconstruct. Feminist leadership is not about um, creating hierarchies. It's about us doing it together for the good of everyone. It's about this deconstructing oppressive hierarchies. And women have been doing this for a very long time and we are open. And we would like to bring an alternative way of living 
that is empowering for everyone and, and not leaving anyone behind. I hope you've enjoyed this mini-series on the power of feminist civil society. If you haven't already, do visit the Gender and Health Hub website, where you can find the think piece authored by Jessica Horn that kicked off conversations for this mini-series. Our website URL is www.genderhealthhub.org, or you can visit the UNUIIGH website, which is www iigh.unu.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at unu underscore iigh or the Gender and Health Hub Twitter handle, which is at Gender Health Hub. And don't forget to send us your feedback and suggestions by email as well. Our email address is iigh-info at unu.edu. We will be kicking off the next mini-series in the new year, so do stay tuned. Thank you so much once again for listening. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only.